You're tuned in to the Kojo Namdi Show on WAMU 88.5. Welcome. Yeah, Capitol Police are now on this floor. They are now working to secure this floor. We're trying to understand whether they've been able to get into the House of Chambers. And of course, knowing whether the mem- Go ahead, Lisa. The police have told me to stay down, and that's what I'm doing. That's what it sounded like inside the Capitol as pro-Trump extremists stormed the building, sparking chaos and a lockdown. One woman was shot and killed, and it was hours before the Capitol was cleared and lawmakers were able to return and certify the presidential election. So how did this happen, and where do we go from here? Joining us now is Lisa Desjardins. She is a correspondent with the PBS NewsHour who reported live from inside the Capitol building during yesterday's insurrection insurrection by pro-Trump extremists. Lisa, Lisa, thank you for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. I'm a fan, Kojo. Thank you. I'm also a fan of yours. What we just heard was audio from the Capitol yesterday. You were reporting live from inside the Capitol building when the pro-Trump extremists broke in. What was that moment like, and how did things unfold? I think, like everyone, I'm still processing exactly um, what happened, but uh, you know, it is that it is a situation that went from zero to a hundred miles per hour, probably in the space of a few seconds. And I've covered the Capitol for a long time. It's a building I love. I have many Capitol Police sources, and I think among the strangest things about yesterday was that I found myself um, kind of early on standing in a balcony in the center of the Capitol, overlooking the front door, those large brass doors. And seeing protesters shattering the glass of that door uh, without any Capitol Police officers in sight, just myself, um, maybe two other reporters, and then two doorkeepers who are unarmed. They're there to help tourists. And the doorkeepers trying to stop the protesters by just yelling at them to stop. Uh, and so I, th- I think that that sudden surge that I saw and the sudden, it seemed, lack of Capitol Police at these important points throughout the building um, was something I didn't expect and, and for, for quite a continually kept um, surprising me as I walked through the building thinking I would find the point where Capitol Police were stationed and, and I couldn't. Uh, that was remarkable. And knowing how those protesters tend to feel about the so-called mainstream media must not have been a comfort to you either. You've been covering politics for a long time. Is there anything that you have seen before that could possibly compare with what you witnessed yesterday? You know, I suppose the expected answer is no. But I will say that um, in this experience, there were strains of other experiences. Uh, there was a Tea Party rally I went to early in the Tea Party movement uh, where I was working for CNN. We had a CNN bus that we drove up. Big mistake to the Tea Party rally. Um, mm-hmm. At that point, CNN was a major target. And the protesters there, the ralliers, actually tried to push the bus. And I got off of the bus and, and uh, surrounded by them had to talk them down. So it's actually a situation I've been in before where you don't have security and, and you only have your ability to connect with people who are trying to be confrontational. Um, this, this was an extreme. This was a, a bit more frightening in that, you know, there were hundreds of protesters being violent 
in front of me. Um, but it was the same situation in that I had to um, point to my mask, which said I was with PBS. I had to do things like say, you know, Sesame Street, <laughs> you know, to try and <laughs> try and deescalate. And um, but it to me, it, it it was part of a spectrum and had the same DNA as other hostile events I've been at toward the media. Well, I should mention that the Department of Justice this morning indicated that it intends to persecute all of the perpetrators of that insurrection yesterday. Lisa, after yesterday's events, newsrooms like ours had to decide how to refer to these Trump supporters and what was happening. Our newsroom, which follows NPR guidance, and so we're using the term pro-Trump extremists and calling what they did an insurrection. What was that discussion like at the PBS NewsHour? <laughs> I'm glad you're asking. I think we're still having that discussion. I think that you know, I was at the Capitol until 4 a.m. last night covering the electoral count and you know more information than you need, but woke up early to get my son to preschool. And there hasn't been a lot of time for that discussion for me. I think other people have had it. I do think um, I'm more informed by the conversations I had with members of Congress yesterday in my own thinking. And I've been saying rioters because that's what I personally saw. Uh, but they clearly were pro-Trump. I will say, though, my question about that term is that um, it's, it's accurate and it's important to say, but it doesn't encompass everything. I think that um, the president doesn't have control over this group anymore. I think this group has grown beyond him. And uh, I think that that's something people need to understand. It's no secret that President Trump and his allies in Congress are not always, well, truthful, especially in continuing to make the baseless claim that the election was rigged. As a journalist, how difficult has it been for you to cover this administration? It has been very difficult. I have the blessing of working at the U.S. Capitol, though, where I, I think sources are more forthcoming, um, though many Republicans obviously have only wanted to speak off the record about their true feelings of the president. And that has been difficult because you know that Republicans um, are saying one thing in public, some of them, while in private they have real misgivings about this president. And, and that's something, as a journalist, you have to cover as irresponsible. You know, if you have concerns about someone who's acting and you're not speaking up and you're in a position to do it, um, you should. And, and that has been tricky to cover. Well, Bill on Capitol Hill email, this morning I walked down to the Capitol building. Two big changes, one, many military personnel on all sides of the Capitol, and two, new taller fencing going up around the Capitol, similar to the fencing put in around Lafayette Square on the White House months ago. These kinds of measures should have been taken before the insurrectionists rioted at the Capitol yesterday. The leadership of the Capitol Police failed miserably this week. It's time for new leadership for the Capitol Police, who recognized the threat that the radical right-wing Trump supporters post to democracy in this country. As I said, that was an email from Bill on Capitol Hill. Joining us now is Chris Van Hollen. He's a U.S. senator representing Maryland. He's a Democrat. Senator Van Hollen, thank you for joining us. Kojo, it, it's good to be with you uh, after that very, very bleak day uh, for our democracy. Uh, at least we worked through the night to show that a violent mob uh, wouldn't overthrow uh, our democratic uh, election. Uh, but uh, the the stain of this moment and the damage done uh, will be long-lasting. How did this unfold in the Senate chamber for you? Well, for me, I had been over in the House 
uh, chamber for the convening of the joint session. Uh, we got to the state of Arizona. There was an objection. Uh, we broke. I came back uh, to the Senate and then headed over to my office because I was making some going to be making some remarks on the Senate floor. And as I was headed back to the Capitol, uh, we went on lockdown and, uh, you know, sent to secure uh, locations. Um, and then I was in touch with my colleagues in the Capitol Police. Uh, but uh, I've watched a, a lot of this, as many Americans did, um, you know, through the media and the images of this uh, violent Trump-inspired mob uh, taking over the floor of the House and the Senate. And following up on the email that I just read from Bill on Capitol Hill, how could this happen and why wasn't there enough security and preparation? Well, let me get to the security situation in a moment, Kojo, but let's not absolve the folks who are most responsible for what happened, starting with the president of the United States, uh, who has fed these poisonous lies to millions of Americans about how uh, he was cheated out of an election, even though we know uh, that that's not uh, the case, and accomplices, um, too many members of the House and Senate uh, who have looked the other way as the president has shredded our Constitution. And so that's what led this mob to come to the Capitol, where I actually witnessed them taking down an American flag and putting up a Trump flag. And, of course, we saw Confederate flags and seditious conduct. Now, I want to thank individual members of the Capitol Police uh, for putting themselves at risk. I do think at the overall security level, there was clearly um, a failure, and uh, that needs to be very carefully assessed. Uh, we, you know, we knew um, a, a big crowd might be coming. It, it turned out it was a violent mob, again, instigated by the President of the United States. Uh, and so we will have a thorough review of the, of the security situation. Well, typical of the responses we're getting, I suspect, is Lynn in Salisbury, Maryland. Lynn, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hi, Lynn. Are you there? Yes, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Go ahead, please. Okay. Um, I just wanted to make a comment that I went to a climate change protest with Jane Fonda when she was doing her fire drill Fridays at the Capitol building. And there was probably a policeman per two protesters, and um, many more people were arrested on uh, as soon as we put our feet on the Capitol steps, and we were whisked away by the police in big um, police wagons to the, um, you know, to be processed. And, uh, you know, I didn't see any of that yesterday, and it was very disappointing. Okay, thank you very much for your call. To add to that, Senator Van Hollen, here is Laverne in Washington, D.C. Laverne, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Yeah, hi. I don't want to reiterate the obvious, um, especially in response to law enforcement and how they responded to those protesters versus Black Lives Movement. We saw a total de-escalation of their actions to the point of cooperation, enabling, and support of these terrorists. All because, in my opinion, they are part of these people. They are just like them. They are members of whatever group they are. And these are the same people, I believe, who, as insurgents, started riots and looting during the Black... Allow me to interrupt because, Senator Van Hollen, we only have about 80 seconds left. You're hearing that a lot. How would you respond? 
Well, Kojo, I think there's no doubt uh, that uh, we've seen a double standard uh, in the sort of security measures uh, with respect to Black Lives Matter um, and what we witnessed uh, yesterday at the Capitol. And that has to be, you know, part of this uh, thorough review of the security situation. I want to thank uh, Mayor Bowser for deploying the D.C. police in Maryland and Virginia for sending members of the National Guard. Uh, but none of that should have been necessary. Uh, they, there should have been obvious preparation. And, yes, I do think that uh, we've seen a, a clear double standard. Um, all of this needs to, to be addressed. Uh, I just want to underscore at the end here, though, again, what caused this. What caused this is a lawless president and too many members of the Republican Party okay. uh, who even yesterday, uh, we're, we're feeding these lies. And uh, that, that's what happened. And that was an attack on our democracy. And we've got we've to fix it as a country. Thank you very much, Senator Chris Van Hollen. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk with um, D.C. Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton and discuss the Black Lives Matter comparisons. I'm Kojo Nandi. It's Diane. The next meeting of my book club is on Wednesday, May 31st at 1 p.m. Eastern. I'll host a discussion of Mad Honey by Jody Pico and Jennifer Finney Boylan, followed by a conversation with the authors. Find out more and register at dianereem.org slash book club. Welcome back. We're discussing yesterday's insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, and joining us now is Eleanor Holmes Norton, the district's delegate to the U.S. House of Representatives. She's a Democrat congresswoman. Norton, thank you for joining us. Glad to be with you, Kojo. And Lisa Desjardins is still with us. She's a correspondent with the PBS NewsHour. Congresswoman Norton, where were you yesterday, and what did you see and hear as this unfolded? Well, fortunately, I was teleworking so that I was not caught in the midst of this the way the the members, there were some members on the floor, not all, uh, but and some members in the Senate who actually caught in the foray, I was not. Uh, yeah. yeah, I called your office to see how you were doing and then realized you were, as with mem- many members of your staff, are terribly working. But, yeah. m- but many are asking, how did this happen and why wasn't there enough law enforcement on hand? Uh, this, uh, the reason there wasn't enough law enforcement on hand is because the Capitol Police did not do their job in planning and in calling for reinforcements long before the riot occurred. It's not as if, Kojo, that we didn't have notice of almost exactly what would happen and if the president wasn't not only complicit, but virtually the leader of the band in calling for what happened yesterday. Uh, So the Capitol Police could not have done this by themselves. I'm very proud of the Metropolitan Police, who uh, answered promptly. Uh, Indeed, virtually every police force did. But 
there was time for planning which did not occur, and we see that now in the wreckage, and that's the only name for it, that is now being cleaned up at the Capitol. Well, there are more than a dozen different law enforcement bodies policing the district. How does that complicate things? Normally, they coordinate well together. Uh, that means a lot of extra safety in the district. And remember, we get millions of visitors every year, so that's all right with us. Uh, but the kind of coordination that was necessary uh, last night was so foreseeable that you would need virtually every law enforcement agency in the district, and as you just said, Kojo, they all work together anyway. Why wasn't there a central command making sure that the Capitol did not have uh, rioters sitting in the speaker's chair, for example, and literally taking over the Capitol? Imagine the disgrace this has been to the United States of America and a disgrace that could have been prevented. Mayor Bowser has said repeatedly that she is constrained in preparing for and responding to events like this because D.C. lacks statehood. How might things have been different were D.C. a state? Well, the mayor is so right. Uh, actually, we wouldn't even have to be a state if, if, if uh, even short of statehood, and that, of course, is ultimately what we need. Uh, but the mayor doesn't even have a control over her own National Guard, and she could get that even without statehood. I have a bill to give her control over the nation, off of, off the, uh, over the National Guard. Uh, and we need to repeal the president's authority to federalize the D.C. Police Department. Bear in mind that an ancient statute enables that to happen. Those are still on the bush on the books. Now, we are told, at least the press reports, that the president initially refused to deploy the D.C. National Guard to defend the Capitol. That only goes to show uh, that we don't need this, this uh, authority dispersed this way. And that's part of what, why we saw a riots inside the Capitol itself. Uh, unabated last night. Congresswoman Norton, you have reintroduced the statehood bill in this session. Democrats, with the vice president as tiebreaker, will now have a majority in both houses. What does that mean for the prospects for statehood? Well, it, it means uh, um, almost everything. We've got two senators, of course, in the election that were, that's <laughs> not even that should be the talk of the day today, uh, uh, giving us control uh, uh, of the Senate. This puts us on a actual road to, to statehood. In June, I got the D.C. statehood bill passed for the first time uh, since the district was created, um, and that's not even a year ago. Uh, here we are already to the point where where it looks like uh, we are on the road to statehood. We now have more co-sponsors by far than we had last time. In the Senate, we have 90% of the Democrats supporting uh, D.C. statehood. 
statehood is in very good shape. It is not an easy bill to pass. In fact, if you will note, uh, the Republican Senate passed nothing this year except confirmation of judges. With Democrats taking over the Senate, we'll be in a much better position to move towards statehood for the District of Columbia. Lisa Desjardins, lawmakers ultimately were able to return and finish the business of certifying the election. What are you focused on now following yesterday's <laughs> extraordinary events on Capitol Hill? Well, it's definitely two separate storybooks right now that are connected. I think what uh, the Congresswoman is describing, what the, the possibilities for a Democratic Congress and a Democratic presidency are very large and very important to cover, even as we also cover the future of the Republican Party itself uh, and the Trump supporters. But I, I also, at this moment, I, I really am driven uh, to figure out the security problems at the U.S. Capitol and follow up on some reporting I've had about you know, long-term vacancies that have been difficult to fill. Some of my Capitol Police sources have been told, telling me for a long time. Um, and, you know, why is it that this perhaps the most visible building on Earth was not ready? Congresswoman Norton, there's a debate about what's best for the country at this point and whether we should just move on without prosecution or impeachment. What are your feelings about this? Well, I, on, on the removal of the president, you can, you can see members of his own uh, administration resigning. Uh, impeachment is a very long process. That puts that off the board when he has only about two more weeks in office. Also being proposed is removing the president under the 25th Amendment. <laughs> Speaking as a constitutional lawyer, um, I can understand it. But that amendment is cloaked in the notion of disability that the president is unable to perform his duties. So I, they, I, I, that, that could only be done by his own cabinet. So I'm not sure that could occur in these two weeks. I wish I could say that there's no more damage he could do in the next two weeks. And, and what I, can't, I, can't, I cannot say is that we have a ready remedy to keep him from doing further damage. Let me have Katie in Columbia, Maryland, give us the last word in this segment. Katie, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hi. Thank you, Kojo. I really just wanted to chime in from the perspective of an MPD officer's spouse. Um, my wife was down there all day yesterday, uh, worked 18 hours, and is back down there today with three hours of sleep in between. And the few words that I actually got to speak with her in all of this, because um, I've been watching like everyone else, she, her sentiment was this is the single most difficult and horrific day of her career. And I just want people to try and remember that as the sound bites come out and as people are so quick to make broad judgments about the officers who are working down there, please try to remember that these people are really trying their best with what they have and, uh, and they're putting their lives on the line. And I just wanted to send appreciation to them, but also just help remind people that the, the officers are not in conjunction with what happened yesterday. It was, it was a mess. I think we all saw that, but they did their yes. best. Well, I can tell you, Katie, and I'm sure both Congresswoman Norton and Lisa 
Desjardins will agree that without the Metropolitan Police Department of the District of Columbia, the insurrection that we saw yesterday would have probably lasted much longer. And I'm afraid that's about all the time we have. Congresswoman Norton, thank you for joining us. Of course. Lisa Desjardins, always a pleasure. You're welcome. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll take a closer look at the comparisons between how Black Lives Matter protesters were treated and how yesterday's insurrectionists were. I'm Kojo Nand. Welcome back to our conversation about the far-right insurrectionists who caused chaos at the U.S. Capitol yesterday. Joining us now is Greg Carr, Chair of the Department of Afro-American Studies at Howard University. Greg, thank you for joining us. Always a pleasure, brother. Good to hear your voice. Same here. Dana Fisher is a professor of sociology at the University of Maryland and the author of American Resistance from the Women's March to the Blue Wave. Dana Fisher, thank you for joining us again. Thanks. Thanks for having me back. <laughs> also with us is Nini Taylor, a core organizer with the D.C. chapter of Black Lives Matter. Nini Taylor, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Dana Fisher, I'll start with you. A lot of people in the media were wrestling with how to describe these events, including what to call the people who stormed the Capitol. Were they protesters, insurrectionists, rioters? As someone who studies protests, how do you navigate the terminology, and where is that line between a protest and, well, something else, like what happened yesterday? Well, I think that the the big line that was crossed yesterday was that these were Americans who were challenging the legitimacy of the U.S. government. I mean, I've studied protests of all sorts, uh, peaceful to more confrontational protests, but when people are taking arms against the police, the National Guard, elected officials, you know, threatening to hang people on the grounds of the U.S. Capitol, which literally was happening yesterday, these are insurrectionists. These are no longer protesters. They're certainly not peaceful protesters, and therefore... Uh, thinking about the freedom of speech and the freedoms afforded to people who are expressing their will, you know, their their opinions in a peaceful manner should not apply anymore. Greg Carr, Angel from Houston, Texas, emailed us. If we have learned one thing from all of this is that words matter. We need to stop calling them protesters and call them domestic terrorists. Calling them protesters shields them from what they truly represent and gives them legitimacy. Greg, there's been a hesitancy to use the terms domestic terrorism to describe what happened. As we said at NPR and WAMU, we're using the term insurrection. But what are some of the issues in naming something like this for you, Greg Carr? Well, at the center of it, I think, is the ultimate evasion. When you're dealing with a white settler state that was founded in original violence, we're still grappling over the question of who's a human being and who's not in this country. Uh, Early this morning, when Connor Lamb was speaking in Congress and things almost came to fisticuffs, like we're back in the 19th century, people throwing hands in Congress, he said, we all know why. The protesters, the insurrectionists, the domestic terrorists, however you want to call them, we all know why they were allowed to do what they did and and go home, which then sparked this great outcry from the other side of the aisle. Next thing you know, people were standing up and Nancy Pelosi was banging the gavel. The evasion is the evasion of race. It's the evasion of whiteness. It's the unspeakable thing. Many people in this country are not grappling with what to call these folks. But unfortunately, 
Uh, we live in a country and not really a nation. We're talking about common culture, common memory, common history. So when Joe Biden says we are better than this, when Senator Cory Booker says we brought this upon ourselves, my question is, who is we? Many people are very clear about the fact that whiteness dictated what happened yesterday. So every question that comes after not dealing with that evasion becomes a question that, frankly, is not very honest. Things like, how did this happen? What do you mean, how did it happen? If folks could tell you from BWI and Dulles and National that these folks were coming in in airplanes on Monday and Tuesday and taking up places to stay, you knew what was going to happen. The man said he was going down there to meet them. Just about. He told them to go and you couldn't get the place secure. No, this happened because of the evasion of the central formative kind of structural logic of this country. And until we deal with that, everything else is going to just kind of feed that evasion. I'd like to piggyback on what you said um, about we because you wrote on Twitter yesterday, Joe Biden says this is not who we are. That depends on what you mean by we, which you just said, because this is exactly who they are. Tell us, Greg, who are they? They are people who have been promised a country that they feel is slipping away. They are folks who feel that they're defending their birthright in, in their mind. And by they, I mean those who feel that there's an entitlement that is deeply informed by race, the cultural logic of race. In their mind, they were not storming the Capitol as much as they were occupying their country. And so when people say, oh, there's a Confederate flag in, in the, under the Capitol Dome, understand that that is symbolic of the lost cause. It's the same mentality that, that the Confederates thought, led the Confederates to believe they were actually defending the country. It is the logic of the filibuster. John C. Calhoun of South Carolina was the architect of the filibuster in the 19th century to protect the slave power because he said this is the birthright of America. So, you know, as we now finally go into this new cycle with two new senators from Georgia who... If they blow up the filibuster and move forward, can get some of this stuff passed, like D.C. statehood, perhaps, as Senator, uh, sorry, as Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Lorne has said, there's going to be uh, a, a white lash from the they who think that America means a white country. And that, that I don't know. I don't know how we disabuse folk of that notion, at least not in a critical mass enough to be able for us to be able to go forward as a nation. Nene Taylor, allow me to read an email we got from Christine from Durwood, Maryland. As a mother of young adults who were shot at and gassed in Lafayette Square doing Black Lives Matter for simply standing in the street, I'm amazed and disgusted that white terrorists were simply allowed to walk around private property after illegal, illegally breaking in. Anyone who can say there is not systematic racism in America isn't looking very carefully. Nene Taylor the people who stormed the Capitol were predominantly white. How would you respond to what Christine from Durwood, Maryland, just emailed? Um, first, I want to, like, I really want to drop the mic after Greg spoke. <laughs> but, I, <laughs> but I will address her, and I would tell her absolutely. And what I will say is, what happened yesterday and what happened at Lafayette Square is what the system is, was built to do. Enslaved patrol. At Lafayette Square, we were black people. We were black people who used our voice and our, and, our, and our message, which is a threat to white supremacy and a system that's not built for us. And so, therefore, the enslaved patrol was to enslave us and to keep us silent. 
So therefore, what happened at Lafayette Square and Lafayette Park was exactly, it was planned to happen that way. It's unfortunate. But when we go out there, we know that we are going against the enslaved patrol. And so therefore, the people at the right, at Capitol, that's their, that's their land. That's their, they didn't, they came here knowing that that capital belonged to them and not the people who work there or not the taxpaying people of, of the United States of America. And so they had the right to go where they had the privilege and the right to go into their capital. Nene Taylor, we heard this debate last summer. Do you feel observers were quicker to label Black Lives Matter protests riots and to describe protesters as violent, even when the vast majority were peaceful? What I would say is I'm the direct action coordinator for Black Lives Matter D.C. And when I do a direct action training, I literally say from the start, there's no such thing as a nonviolent direct action if you are black. You are automatically target violence because of the color of your skin. And so, therefore, because of the way that, this, that America is built, we are a threat because of the color of our skin. We are a threat because we are resilient people. We are a threat because we are powerful people. And because of that, we are target thugs, rioters, looters in a sense of white supremacy, white, white supremacy America. So it doesn't shock me that they say that because they fear for what's to come because we're not going nowhere and we're going to get free. Here's Leona in Alexandria, Virginia. Leona, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hi, Kojo, and thanks so much for, for everything that you do for us here in the metro D.C. area. Um, when I called about 40 minutes ago, I was in tears because of how appalling it was to see these white supremacists storming into the, peop- the people's chambers. And I also teach at Howard University. So to see just how these white domestic terrorists were treated compared to all of the protests around the country... If, if these folks had been Black Lives Matter or just non-white, you better believe they would have been beaten and handcuffed and thrown into vans. So I'm, I'm just appalled that, of course, that it happened, and then that there's been virtually no repercussion. Well, as I said, the Justice Department says that there will be prosecuting those who are identifiable as a part of yesterday's insurrection invasion of the U.S. Capitol. So we'll have to see how that rolls out. Here is, and thank you for your call, Leona. Here is Monica in Annapolis. Monica, your turn. Oh, hi, Kojo. Thank you so much for all that you do. And thank you for having this important discussion. I just want to echo what your panelists have said already. Um, This is a matter of white supremacy and, and domestic terrorism, and it can't be called anything else The fact that the terrorists were allowed to breach the Capitol, that officers virtually stood back. And no disrespect to the officers. I get it. You have a hard job. But this is about white supremacy and its rampant grip on our nation. And so when we have our elected officials saying this isn't America, that's just patently untrue. This is America. And until we deal with it, we're never going to move past it. Essentially what Greg Carr has been saying for 
I guess, decades. Dana Fisher, Michigan State House was stormed by an armed mob last spring, and yesterday Trump supporters protested at state capitals across the country in Utah, Oregon, California, Kansas, to name a few. Are you concerned that this tactic of directly threatening lawmakers is gaining traction among radical right-wing groups? It absolutely is, Kojo. And what's worse is that what basically anybody who was thinking about this kinds of activism learned from Michigan this past summer is there are very limited repercussions for storming while armed into state houses across our country. And you know what's even worse is we saw images of many of these activists after being released yesterday or escorted out of the Capitol having drinks at the Trump Hotel and other places around D.C., And it's absolutely unacceptable. I just would build off of what Greg said here and say, this is not about dealing with the future white lash. This is the white lash right now. We're experiencing it. Greg Carr, many noted that there were very few arrests yesterday. In contrast, to hundreds of protesters arrested or detained during protests last summer. And I just mentioned a couple of times, as the Justice Department says, some people will say the Justice Department claims it will be seeking to prosecute people who can be identified as being responsible for yesterday's violence at the Capitol. Um, what is your feeling about that? Should they be prosecuted? And are you confident they will be? Oh, yeah, I'm pretty confident they will be, certainly after January 20th. I think that what we're engaged in in this moment is Donald Trump, who is a symptom of the structural problem, not the cause, has provided um, folk with a perfect point of uh, departure for their fictive absolution. This is what all these mass resignations is about. People are now trying to fade back into the structure as if they, oh, oh, it's like that scene in Casablanca where I'm shocked, shocked to find gambling going on. <laughs> so, so this is a fictive absolution. So, of course, they're going to, as Dana said, after they had their drinks, came back to their hotels. And so, you know, when I hear people like Sister Taylor, who has put her body on the line and all the people around the country who have done that, this People say, well, you know, these folks are trying to help make America better. No, we're engaged in acts of self-defense because what we find ourselves confronted with is a system that uh, engages in a kind of a theater, a theater to uh, address what appear to be symptoms and momentary, momentary problems rather than address the structural problems. So, yeah, I'm pretty confident that there will be people who will be held up as isolated in uh, examples of white terrorism, allowing the structural issues to persist. There are a lot of people who want to weigh in on this, so I'll go to Christina in Gaithersburg. Christina, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hey there, Kojo. Thank you so much for all you do for us every day. Um, But I guess my thing was, I felt so violated and I know people across the country and across the world felt so incredibly violated and, you know, not just from a perspective of national security, you know, this picture of people dancing in Kremlin, but like as somebody who grew up in the DMV, so, you know, I'm a red line girl, I'm a first generation immigrant. My parents came to this country and grew up in DC. This is home, you know, like it just, it felt I, I felt so incredibly violated. Um, I just I kept thinking to myself, people come to this country and look at this country and they think, you know, granted, we have our issues, but you don't have to go to the grocery store with armed guards with an AK-47. This is the United States of America. 
you know, it, it just, I just, it, it was terrifying. It was absolutely terrifying. And, and to see the terror and the black officer running up the stairs, you know, the fear in his eyes as he's overwhelmed by, by people attempting to do him harm. I mean, this is, this is, this is, this is, this is insane. And the trauma that we all got to watch, you know, play out on, on TV. I'm a social worker. Well, Christina, you, you point out something that a few reporters did yesterday, and those of us who live here who've been receiving phone calls from relatives and friends all over the country understand is that this is a city where there are 700,000 or so residents who live in the neighborhoods in the city who all saw what was going on yesterday, and it felt like an invasion, not just of the U.S. Capitol, but an invasion of our city. So that feeling of violation was widely, widely shared. But thank you very much for your call. Here's Tom in Silver Spring, Maryland. Tom, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hi, thank you, Kojo. And thank you to all the guests. Um, I'm a white person who grew up in South Texas. And I can say that everything that we've been seeing yesterday and over the last several years with what seem like radicalized, uh, you know, crazy terrorists, they are the edge of a spear, but it's a big spear. White racism goes very deep. There were a lot of Confederate flags in windshields on cars in my high school parking lot. There were a lot of discussions. And it's not just, you know, folks that didn't graduate from high school. This goes up to very educated people, professionals all across the country. The, uh, we should not underestimate how much sympathy there probably is for the folks who did what they did yesterday, which is obviously I think all of them should have been arrested. All of them should have been arrested. Um, and we should take very, very seriously the fact that the police officers, many of whom were very brave and all of whom were in danger, there is video uh, available on Twitter, it's real, of police officers who were not being pushed or attacked moving barricades to let protesters onto the Capitol grounds. I've also seen at least one photograph of a police officer taking a selfie with one of these insurrectionists inside the Capitol building. So there is also, and I think this is really important, there's racism in the police force, not just here, but everywhere, and that needs to be addressed. Thank you. Well, in terms of what Tom has just pointed out, Greg Carr, Malcolm X was fond of saying that the study of history is the most rewarding of all. What does history tell us about what we saw yesterday? Well, history tells us, I think, simply put, that this country was founded on the coddling of enslavement and on the dispossession of Native Americans, their land, and since then, it has been struggling to overcome that birth defect. So what we saw yesterday, uh, and to Tom's point, uh, so what we saw yesterday is an extension of that struggle. Until we expand the definition of human in this country, beyond even the legal definition of citizen, we're going to see these kind of things repeated. And, and you know, just very quickly, that image of that black police officer, capital officer, which of course is a rare thing to see a non-white officer in that rank, climbing those steps. Am I going to use my baton now? No, I better stop. And then when he gets to the three other white officers on that higher floor, you watch him. He hesitates because he's now got to determine, are you all with them or are you with me? And only when they advance toward the people chasing him does he join them. But there is a moment when he's even passes them like, wait a minute. And I think that is probably as powerful a metaphor for what happened yesterday as anything that I've seen so far. 
Nini Taylor, local officials asked residents and counter-protesters to stay away, and indeed we didn't see many, if any, counter-protesters yesterday. Was there any discussion among local Black Lives Matter activists and if pro-Trump extremists continue to take to the streets, do you think more counter-protesters might feel compelled to come out? Um, First, I want to be clear that Black Lives Matter D.C. made the statement at the main first to mayor bios and city officials, hotels and businesses to have black and brown people stay home. And we gave them receipts of what is being said. And so then Mayor Bowser made the statement of asking people to stay home. So I want to clarify that first, that before Mayor Bowser made that statement, Black Lives Matter DC had put out a press statement on on December the 30th with four demands that could have kept D.C. safe and she could have defended D.C. If those four simple demands would have been met, D.C. would have been safer than what it was yesterday. And then I would say that this work is continuous. These white supremacists and terrorists, which you all won't call, are not going nowhere because their American pie is being dismantled. And so, therefore, after October, after January the 20th, we have to do the work because they're going to come back to D.C., which is not a state. And then, therefore, now you, you, you're talking about you, you are invading our city and you are invading and threatening our residents. So, therefore, we will, we will still organize to keep D.C. safe. So, yes, after the 20th, it won't stop with Biden. Not for black people, period. So be clear that, yeah, we will be organizing, but we're not organizing for inauguration. That's not going to save black and brown people. We're organizing to build black liberation and empowerment of black people. Dana Fisher, Twitter didn't allow users to retweet or like Trump's tweet of support for the rioters, and Twitter has since forced the president to delete those tweets. And now it's my understanding that Facebook has banned uh, Donald Trump entirely. What responsibility do social media sites like Twitter and Facebook have in instances like this? And how more broadly have protesters used social media as a tool over the years? Well, protesters originally took to social media because it was a way of distributing a narrative and messages and frames about events which was unmediated and would go out to supporters and you could reach a broader audience. Um, Unfortunately, what we've seen is that the president has chosen to go through these uh, more direct channels to reach his, you know, his followers, many of whom are white supremacists, many of whom he spoke directly to via social media yesterday, as well as before that. Um, We saw that during, you know, the debates when he told the Proud Boys to stand by. So social media plays a very big role in diffusing this kind of information and amplifying misinformation, which we've seen through the entirety of the Trump administration, all four years. So I imagine that these companies are going to need to think about the role that they're playing in the kinds of echo chambers that are being developed and the ways that these um, unacceptable behaviors are being supported and, you know, encouraged through their media. I think I'll give Nashiva in Southwest D.C. the last word because Nashiva wants to talk about some people we haven't heard a lot about during these events. Nashiva, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Thank you for taking my call. Huge fan. Um, I just wanted to talk about 
what would have happened is these terrorist insurrectionists were even more successful and did make contact with not just members of Congress or congressional staff, but capital staff. People are just going in there to do their job. And what was their end game besides overturning the results? Because we think about the fact that D.C. wasn't the only city to see action from Trump supporters and that we have incidents in the past couple of months of um, congressional elected officials being having their lives put in danger is something that I think should be on everyone's mind. And lastly, how will folks um, be protected moving forward? And by folks, I mean mostly the non-white people who work in the Capitol and are just trying to get their jobs done. And they, most of them are not direct hires. Many of them are contractors, so they may not have as much protection. And how are they thinking about this moving forward? Because the people, who, night, the people who clean the buildings, the people who provide food service, all of those people who are residents, if not of the city, of this region, thank you for mentioning them. But I'm afraid that's all the time we have. Greg Carr, Dana Fisher, Nini Taylor, thank you all for joining us. Today's segment on events at the Capitol had production help from the entire Kojo Show team. Coming up tomorrow on the Politics Hour, U.S. Senator Tim Kaine joins us to talk about the pro-Trump insurrection at the Capitol and what he's expecting between now and when President-elect Joe Biden is sworn in as the nation's next president. Plus, we'll discuss local and federal law enforcement's response to yesterday's events. That all starts tomorrow at noon. Until then, thank you for listening and stay safe. I'm Kojo Nandi. Kojo Nambi Show is produced by Julie Deppenbrock, Sydney Granin, Lauren Marco, Kurt Gardiner, Richard Cunningham, and Inez Renike. Our managing producer is Ingalisa Schroepsdorf. Our broadcast engineer is Rashad Young. Today's engineer was Mike Kidd. For past shows and more content, visit kojoshow.org. Thanks for listening to The Kojo Namdi Show, and if you're already a member of WAMU 88.5, thank you for your support. If not, it's easy to give online at wamu.org. Just click the Donate button, and thanks.